Today's episode is sponsored by Estee Lauder, the nighttime skincare expert. We will explain what we mean in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. I realized I was making a third of what everyone else was making. And it was the first moment in a 10-year career where all of a sudden I was like, I need to really think about this and I need to start asking questions. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Lydia Finette joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She's the Global Director of Strategic Partnerships at Christie's Auction House. She's also their lead benefit auctioneer, and she's raised over half a billion dollars for charities around the world. Lydia has taken the lessons she's learned while paving her own career path and has put them in her book, Lucky for You, entitled (laughs) The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. Lydia, welcome to Skim from the Couch. Great to be here. You have the coolest job. We're going to get into it, but I just want you to skim your resume for us. Well, my resume is actually kind of short. I've worked at Christie's Auction House in New York for 21 years. I started as an intern and had worked at the company for basically two internships and then was hired out of an internship. I ran the events department for basically 10 years on and off. I sort of started at the bottom, grew up, and about five or six years in, everyone above me left, and the job was mine. And it was during that time that I realized that there was a side business that you could do there called benefit auctioneering. So you're not the art auctioneer. You're not on the podium selling Monet's and Picasso's. Essentially, you are the person who is getting on stage at 11 o'clock at night at a charity auction trying to raise money for a nonprofit when no one wants to buy anything. And so those were really my two jobs for a long time. About 10 years into my career, I decided to launch a new department called Strategic Partnerships for the company, which I now run globally. And I run all of the large scale benefit auctions around the world for Christie's now as well. So really fun job. And I do love it. What is something not on your LinkedIn that we should know about you? I am a mom of three. I am a voracious runner. And I love more than anything to be with people. It's my favorite thing in the world. Have you always been like that? Yes, absolutely. I am a natural extrovert. There's no question about it. I always think it's funny when people say, so what do you do for downtime? I call my friends and hang out with them or <laughs> try to form, a, try to find more friends to hang out that with. That is the exact opposite of how I feel. And yeah. my husband, too. <laughs> he loves being by himself. And I'm always trying to get in the room to talk to him. <laughs> and yeah, no, we're very different, Lydia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I can bring you into my fold. So before we explain actually what your job is in day to day, I just want you to tell our audience, because I think you are the rare person who's really been at the same company for their career. What is your best piece of advice for how to get hired as an intern full-time? I think being persistent and really walking into an interview as an intern and making sure that they understand that you're going to work hard. I know that sounds like the craziest thing to say because it seems pretty obvious to me, but I can tell you that I've probably had 80 or 90 interns over my 20 years at Christie's, I can tell you the 15 who I still remember. I think that internships are such an amazing opportunity to do two things. 
meet people in a company. And I say that because I shredded paper my entire first internship at Christie's. But guess what? The shredder was by the elevator. So I met every single person going in and out of there. And, also, and you just introduced yourself? I mean, people are standing there. They're waiting. And remember, this was pre-iPhone, so there was nothing to do. You yeah. just had to sort of stand there and wait. But I would stand there and just sort of you know, make an off comment about something that was happening or you know, something as easy as still shredding, you know, which <laughs> people feel sorry for you, so they start to talk to you. They always knew where I was, so they'd always come back, and then there was joke, oh, you're still shredding. I'm like, I sure am. How's your day going? You know, just a quick introduction, and all of a sudden, they remember my face. And so when I see them at an event later that week or checking people in in special events, there was sort of that name recognition and that facial recognition. So I just think an internship is the time that people don't realize you get a recommendation from someone that you're interning with in a job that's very senior in a company, and that stays with you for the rest of your life. How did you get your foot in the door at Christie's? I knew nothing about the auction world. I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. My parents were not art collectors, but I did a junior semester abroad at Oxford University. And while I was there, I read an article about the auction world. It was when Princess Diana's dresses were being sold for charity. Yes, yes I, I, remember I remember that. Yeah, and it talks about Christie's and yeah. it talks about this auction world. And honestly, if you knew anything about me, my whole life is created in my mind. So I was like, well, this seems like the place that I should work. I mean, it's glamorous, people travel, you're meeting all of these people to my earlier point. And so I basically started talking about how I was gonna work at Christie's. And of course, 99% <laughs> of the people I knew had no idea what Christie's was. But my dad, who is just such a charismatic, amazing man, we were at a Christmas party of a family friend in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is not a bastion of art collecting. And there was a young woman who was doing her, she just started at Christie's as an assistant to an assistant. And so my dad pulled me over and he said, you've been talking about this place. This woman actually works there. And this is when I think sometimes the universe really, if you're open to it, helps you in your path. I said to her, you know, can I get the internship coordinator? Because I was still in college at this point. And she gave me her number. And so I started calling this woman. And it was so late in the game. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. I was coming from Louisiana. This wasn't, this wasn't New York where everybody knew about internships. And so I basically just started calling her. And she kept saying the same thing, which was, oh, dear, I'm so sorry. You know, the internship program is full. But remember, there was no caller ID in that day. So yeah. she had to pick up her phone every day. She oh, had God. no idea. And every day I would call for two straight weeks. And I kept thinking to myself, like, there has to be a way to make her understand that I have to be there. So I have to figure this out. And so I would kind of write through a list of questions that I could ask her that might make her think a little bit differently about me. And so one day, I just hit the nail on the head. I asked her, can I just ask you something before you hang up on me? Would you tell me why the internship has to be closed at 30 people? And she said, well, you know, we do museum trips in the afternoon. And so, asked. yeah, I mean, you, that all of a sudden I was like, well, I don't have to go on a museum yeah. trip. It's fine. You know, and, and so I sort of vocalized that. And I said, well, listen, I don't have to go on a museum field trip. I could stay. And I'm sure there are going to be interns who are sick. And right. maybe I could fill in <laughs> yeah. or hungover. I mean, honestly, yeah. we're all in college at that point. Let's be serious. And I think she was so ready for me to just yeah. stop calling her. She said, let me think about it. And she hung up the phone and then she called me back an hour later and said I could do a modified internship. And I say now that I, I'm pretty sure I went on almost every single one of those museum trips. <laughs> right. You know, that's the funny yeah. thing because of course someone doesn't show up, you know? When I hear this story, we're both just kind of like smiling at you because <laughs> I love the fearlessness. I love the gutsiness that you had and, and poise at a very young age to just go after this. Both of us had a similar tenacity, but didn't have your extroverted part 
to our story. It's a hard and it can be exhausting to put yourself out there like that. And people come to us for advice all the time. And I actually was just talking to a girl yesterday who just is out of college and was trying to get advice on how to network. And I was like, you have an email address, a corporate email address where you work. It's a big building. Just email people. And she's like, well, what do you say? So very literally, what do you say when you call? What do you say when you email? I always think the key to networking, and my father has the best catchphrase that you will use for the rest of your life, which is network or die. Mm-hmm. Um, he truly <laughs> believes networking is yeah. the only reason you, you I, exist, yeah. truly. I would say that the most important thing you want to do when you're networking is distinguish yourself from other people immediately. So what makes you unique? Because you can Google anybody sitting across the table from you. And I think that that's what people lose in the networking element that makes it really difficult for them because they're trying to play the part of somebody else. The easiest way to sell is to sell yourself. Because when you're talking about yourself in a way that feels authentic, it doesn't feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. This is who you are. So you're just putting yourself out there. What you have to get used to is the take it or leave it quality of that. And I think that that's difficult for an extrovert or an introvert. You know, nobody likes for somebody to shut them down. But at the same time, you will never get anything unless you put yourself out there. I want to talk about something that I think is a common theme between the media world and the art world, which is they're highly competitive. It's hard to get that first foot in the door. And if you are lucky enough to get it, you're usually working a ton and not getting paid a lot. And the question that we get all the time is how do they think about that first job? Do they take the job that they really want to take that is, you know, the internship, right? And it's a hard choice. I'm wondering what advice you have for people out there who are looking to break into these industries and also have real financial restraints. Absolutely. I think we all have real financial restraints. We live in New York City or even in the, the outlying areas around the city. It's incredibly expensive. And so I say to people, especially about the art world, can you live without art? Is it the kind of thing that you literally wake up every morning and think, I have to be around it. It drives me. It is my passion. And if the answer is yes, then it probably makes sense for you to be an intern or to take a job that is going to get you on that track over time. And it may not pay exactly what you want, so you may have to get a second job to make that happen. But you have to understand that that is a choice that you are making. If that is not your passion and you just want to do it because it looks fun from the outside, and this is what I wish I had said to myself all those years ago, go and get a job that pays you what you want. And this is something that you can evolve as a side hustle over the course of your life. And then you bring those skills to the place where you interviewed as an intern. And I think that that's one of those things that can seem kind of short-sighted, and especially in this day and age where people are hopping from company, you know, after one year or, or six months or whatever, if you really understand the trajectory of a career, it's long. So if you do the work at the beginning and you get to a place where you are making a salary to afford the life that you want, you can pivot into the art world. You can pivot into the media world, and you have a skill set that you're bringing that you didn't have when you were applying as an intern, so you will get paid for that. So people do get paid in these companies. They may not get paid what people in startups get paid, but they do get paid. Sometimes you just have to start a little bit more mid-level than you would when you think that you should start as an intern. I feel like anyone listening and even just looking at the women in our company who are in the room right now, we're all nodding. We're like, (laughs) yeah, Lydia, like, you're right. Just level set just for our audience. What is your day-to-day job? What do you actually do every day? 
well, mom first. So the beginning of my day is the scramble of getting kids out the door to school or to bringing kids to school. And I have a great husband in the morning. You know, if one of us is getting ready and that person's taking the kids to school, then the other person is making breakfast. So we're on an equal playing field. And I think, frankly, as a high-performing woman, that is a hugely, hugely advantageous way to look at your life. Because otherwise, I think a lot of resentment builds over time. And it's hard because you want to be with your kids as much as you can. So then I, as I either take my children to school or I stay with the baby until our nanny gets there and then I leave to go into the office, I run the strategic partnerships for Christie's globally, which essentially means that if there's any external company that wants to work with Christie's, so a car company or a private jet company, a financial institution, a beauty company, they come in through our department. We talk about how we can work together in this partnership capacity, sort of figuring out exactly which partner wants what and how we can make that work or if it doesn't work at all. And then we create what we call sort of a program around it, and then we charge for it. So we're a revenue-generating department in the company. And I realized, frankly, very early on in special events, a difficult place to be as a support department, which is why when I started Strategic Partnerships, one of the key pillars was make money. Because if you don't make money, you're the first one who gets cut. You know what is my favorite thing that people say to me? No, what? When they're like, you look tired. (laughs) What does that even mean? I work hard and I stay up late and I wish I got more sleep and it shows. Yeah, no, it it shows. Um, Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. (laughs) We are tired. And since we've started the skin, we have been obsessed with finding the right skincare routine. And I think we found the thing for us, which is Estee Lauder's Advanced Night Repair Serum. We spent a lot of time on talking about our skin, trying to make us look not tired, and Estee Lauder's Advanced Night Repair Serum helps fight the look of key signs of aging so you can wake up to more rested, healthier-looking skin. I'm very nervous when I try new products. I have to say this is a fantastic nighttime serum. It is fast-penetrating, helps skin maximize its natural ability to repair by night and protect by day. It is powerful antioxidants, hyaluronic acid, and it basically works to reduce the looks of lines and wrinkles. So head in store or to estelauder.com to learn more. That's E-S-T-E-E-L-A-U-D-E-R.com. Start tonight with Estee Lauder's Advanced Night Repair Serum now. One of the things when you started out is that you went down the auctioneer path, which was very rare for a young woman to do. Can you just walk us through what that was like, why you did that? Literally, my only knowledge of an auctioneer, I'm just imagining like any movie I've seen, I'm thinking of Something's Gotta Give when Amanda Peet's character <laughs> oh, was, yeah. was the auctioneer. But what is that like? It's amazing. I mean, so there are two types of art auctions. There's the art auction, which is what you kind of see in the movies where it's all about art. So people are sitting in a well-lit room and they're watching the auctioneer and the auctioneer is always in the movies, aside from Something's Gotta Give, um, a British gentleman with a bow tie yeah. and mm-hmm. or you know a black tie and it's always a glamorous affair. Charity auctioneering is quite different because you're walking into a room of people who've been drinking all night. And as I said earlier, sometimes they don't even know that there's an auction taking place. So when I was in special events at the beginning of my career, we used to accompany the benefit auctioneers to provide support. So there's always a person who used to stand on stage with our auctioneer as the bid clerk to help spot people in the room. And then there are spotters in the room. And I would stand on stage with the guys that I worked with. And at this point, they were all men. They were all solidly 10 to 15 years older than me. And because 
because I'd been up there as a bid clerk and I the whole time would just sort of be like, if you could just give me the if I could take that microphone from you, I, um, <laughs> that joke did not work and just give me the microphone. I really feel like I could do this a little bit more seamlessly. I tried out. And interestingly, it's a four-day tryout. I say in the book, it's like Survivor. You know, people get cut every single day. And at the end, there were four of us left. Three of them were guys. Two of them were British. And it was really amazing because all of these things I thought I was going to go do when I got on stage, that I was going to bring this new personality, I reverted into exactly what I had seen people do. I probably took 500 auctions that I wanted to crawl off stage after I finished. Like, Years And do you do this because it's prestigious? You made extra money? Like, what's the motivation? In no, doing... at the time. So Christie's would donate auctioneers on behalf of the okay. company. So it's sort of something that we did on behalf of the company. But I enjoyed being on stage. Yeah. And frankly, I didn't have any friends when I moved here because I went to Suwannee in the South and none of my friends came to New York City after that. So it was better than sitting in my apartment yeah. by myself. <laughs> I got to meet people, I guess. Is what how I did you learn how to command a room? So that came after about 500 auctions of feeling, you know, like I was doing a really mediocre job. And I was standing on stage one night. I was really sick all day, like really sick, in bed the whole day. And it was a Saturday, and I was calling all of the auctioneers. Can anyone take this auction? No one could take it. In my personality, it would never occur to me not to show up. That's just not who I am. I mean, I took auctions through three pregnancies. I was dying of morning sickness, and I would still go and take these auctions because once I've committed to something, I need to be there. So I was sitting by the podium drinking ginger ale. I mean, that's how bad it was. Sitting, not even standing. And they announced my name. And when you get up on stage, I mean, you guys know this, you're speakers, you get this sort of adrenaline boost. Usually that adrenaline boost, when you're well, pushes you into energy. In this case, it just pushed me into normalcy. And normalcy for me is talking to yeah. people. And so unlike before when I would stand on stage and look at the audience and say, okay, I'm selling this lovely lot for $1,000, $1,000, $2,000, very formulaic, very rigid, very what Christie's should be. I made a joke about this woman who was seated in the front row, who'd been seated next to me when my boyfriend, who I thought I was going to marry, dumped me. Oh, my like, God. And I'd cried the whole night. And then I had to go. I was head of events. So I was hosting this lunch. And I sat next to her and I cried the entire time. And this was one of our top clients. And she was a woman in her 50s. She could not have been nicer. But the first lot was a cocktail party at her house. So I'm, I said, you know, there is no doubt you will have an incredible time <laughs> yeah. seeing her art collection. But this woman is Oprah. I mean, over the course of a lunch, wow. she brought me from zero to wow. 100, and this could be you. And it was that moment, I think, that I'd been waiting for where all of a sudden the audience connected yeah. and it clicked in. And all of those things really started this path for me to what becoming was, the most the powerful take, woman. Yeah, I mean, what does that mean for those who are not auctioneers, what does that mean to be the most powerful woman in the room? Yeah, you have to tell stories about your breakup. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> no, I think what it means is that you find that confidence to just truly be yourself. And that's when I have so much fun. When I'm on stage, when I'm giving presentations, when I'm doing pitches, it's when I'm fully in what myself. What are the tricks to find that? Look, it takes practice. Yeah. That is that is the key. And, I, and you have to do the work. I also want to call out that you've been known to carry a gavel oh, I have in, in, my your, purse. Can in I your purse. It? Yes, of course. And I think this is the time that we should bring it out. Yeah, oh, I want yeah, a gavel. It's really here. So it's a gavel. It's so little. I know. Is that a travel gavel? I actually had <laughs> This is my travel gavel. It comes in my purse. It's always on my back. So you never know you, when there's an auction. Now, what is your strike method? So when I get on stage, yeah. the first thing I do anywhere in the world... 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm here from Christie's Auction House to conduct a brief auction. It'll be brief if you bid, something like that. Yeah. So I'll always oh, sort of throw good. in a joke. Like, we a all are like at yeah. attention. Yeah. So three knocks. Three knocks. No, no handle. Never a handle. Ever. I like it. And I've forgotten it before. And it's actually kind of funny. I used a little mini Kettle One bottle once at an auction. I used That's a Kiehl's face cream. What is a girl on the go going to do when she forgets yeah. her gavel? You know, it all becomes part of the performance. And so, that's what makes you feel confident. For those that it would maybe be inappropriate to have a gavel with you at all times, <laughs> how do we apply a strike method? I know. <laughs> that is always a good question. So I think the strike method for me is really about the lead up to that moment. Like if you're ever going into a pitch, if you're ever going into a presentation, one of the biggest issues is nerves, right? And a lot of the issues that you run into or because you don't know how you're going to start. And so the strike method for me is really just a clarifying moment. When I'm backstage, I want to have that joke lined up right after the good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So that usually is something that I've heard before that I'll make into a joke. But a strike method, like I have a friend who says that before any pitch, she puts her hands down underneath the table and taps it three times as if to say, like, here we go. Um, I have another friend who, for her, it's all about sort of putting her hands together and just sort of pulsing them. But the most important thing is it doesn't have to be a physical action. It just has to be that you've thought about what your opening sentence is so that you go in and you're ready to literally walk into a pitch knowing what you're going to say, and then you're in it. Because that's what's scary. You know, it's sort of like that, oh, God. Where did you learn this from? I learned it from 1,500 auctions. Literally, that's how I've learned it. And when people kept saying to me when I got off stage, how do you get on stage yeah. in front of 6,000 people and command a room? How do you get yeah. that confidence? And that's why I wrote do this Do your book. auction voice again. Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. We are so delighted to be here for a short auction with Carly and Danielle. That was Guys, so much better than my intro. We I should have this. We need we gavels. Have, yeah, we need gavels. And I also want this just to intro every episode. Yes. I will absolutely Excellent. get you gavels. I can make that happen. I want to talk about negotiating. Yeah. Yes. Because it's weird where you negotiate on behalf of others as part of your job. Did that make it easier to start to negotiate for yourself? Not at the beginning, not at the beginning. And at the beginning, I mean, the first 10 years of my career, the third chapter talks about this sort of pivotal moment in my career where I realized I was making a third of what everyone else was making. And how'd you realize that? Because I started asking questions. And it was this perfect storm. I was at a brunch with friends when a friend of mine mentioned that she was buying a one bedroom. And it was the same brunch where I announced that my roommate was moving out of a one bedroom that we were splitting with a wall and I needed another roommate. And she worked in luxury too. And so I sort of said, how could you be buying an apartment. You know, I don't understand. And she was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And it was the first moment in a 10-year career where all of a sudden I was like, I need to really think about this and I need to start asking questions. And it just happened that we had a new head of HR who maybe three weeks later pulled me aside and said, we should actually talk about how much you make, Lydia. You are wildly underpaid. How badly are you being paid if the head of yeah. HR pulls you aside? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those things made me go interview elsewhere. And when I started to realize, I mean, I interviewed at another company and realized that the same job made four times as much as I was making. And so I essentially went into my boss's office and I didn't really intend to do this when I walked in, but I think I was just so upset and so fired up that I told him that I was leaving two weeks before the biggest evening sale that we were about to have. And then I watched him and this was a man who I deeply loved. I had worked for him for 12 years and I was just in front of him and I was watching his face turn red and I was saying to myself, hold, 
do not say anything right now. Just let him go through the motions. And then when he finally came to and said what I'd been waiting for him to say, which was, what will it take to make you stay? I said, I want to start a new department called Strategic Partnerships. I want triple my salary. And it was amazing. Were how- you shaking? I wasn't even shaking. I was so calm. And I think that's what scared him because every other time that I had gone in there, I would cry. Almost, I'm a huge crier. <laughs> uh, so get those tears out before you walk in. We have talked about crying at work a lot on the show. And so I want you to kind of extrapolate a little bit of what you just said. Get those tears out before you walk in. Go watch The Notebook. I mean, go watch a movie that's <laughs> going to make you sob and get that out. Because, you know, for me, sometimes whenever I have moments where I know they're going to be really fraught or tense. I go running because that helps sort of equalize my temperature and makes me focus and calm. What you don't want in front of you is someone who is sobbing hysterically and trying to ask for a raise but can't really tell you why. And you just need to go in there and remember, this is business. And this is a business and they only are going to pay you as much as they need to pay you to get you to come to work every day. It doesn't mean that your company doesn't like you. It doesn't mean you can't love your company. I love my company, but I still deserve to ask for money if I'm doing a good job for their company and making money for them. What's interesting about your story is that you have been at the same place for your career. Um, And obviously we think about millennials and Gen Z. That is not kind of the norm anymore. When we, before we started the skim, were looking and at that similar stage in our career where it was kind of like, okay, we've been here, we've proven our worth, we're not getting paid. The advice is you have to leave. You it's have to start for a company to make to give that advice. I mean, exactly. It's so short-sighted. And when I hear about your experience, you did that, right? You didn't actually leave, but you felt like you had to start applying at yeah. other places. By the way, I didn't have a job offer when I went in there. I just made that up. So, so, so yeah, <laughs> so let's you know. let's talk about that, like yeah. why you felt that way and that it was a strategy that worked for you. Well, I say now, and I, and I say this when I speak a lot, the most important thing you can do, especially as someone who's starting in a company, is work with your boss to create your career path. I always tell people, I'm like, I have three small children. I have a charity auctions at night. I'm married. I have friends that I need to be in touch with. So I don't sit at my desk every day thinking about your career. So don't come to me when you're about to walk out of the door because you don't feel like you're being appreciated. Come to me at your performance review a year before you want something, because that is usually how long it's going to take me to get what I need for you. So you want to raise, you want to be the director of the department. Here are the two things you know. What about when somebody doesn't know what they want their career path to be? you should be talking to your boss to help figure that out. And you may not ever figure it out. I mean, it may be one of those things that evolves over time, but get your boss invested in your career. There's nothing worse than losing someone who's worked on your team for three or four years, because that's three or four years that go out of the door, Mm -hmm. and then you have to train someone to bring them back in. A lot of us grew up working in a place where FaceTime was integral, and I don't mean FaceTime on the phone, I mean like you actually had to be at your desk, and you didn't have the ability to negotiate with your boss about certain things that were gonna make you stay at a company, that is a reality now. And people want you to stay at their company. So start those conversations from the minute you get there. I was with a young woman recently that you mentored, and she um, has a daytime job. She doesn't make a lot of money. And on the side, she also is trying to do like a side project for somebody, and she's not getting paid. And you told her, you asked for money, asked for $1,000. Now, the $1,000 is not going to change her lifestyle. So I want you to walk me through where that advice comes from and what your feelings are around how to get additional experience and improve yourself while also taking care of yourself. 
Absolutely. There are so many things, and I see this specifically in young women. I see this actually in all women that I know. The idea that your time and that your experience is up for volunteer at any given time. And it drives me insane. Because if you have a skill set that you can do better than other people and you are helping someone who does not have that skill set, then money can be exchanged. It doesn't have to be you can choose to volunteer your time. Like I choose to volunteer my time for charities. That is a choice. But if you want to make money from that and that will make a little extra cash for you to have in your pocket, why not ask? And I think in this position with this young woman, she's working with someone who can absolutely afford to pay her, is asking for certain things that she can check off a list and these are things that she can do for her. So why not ask? I want you to give me retrospective advice. I was working as an associate producer, not making a lot of money. I was trying to get more money and more experience. So I became friendly with a talent at the network I worked at and volunteered to be a graphics producer at night. So my totally my own time, not in my daytime hours. They said I could get paid. Very minimal, basically a stipend. Two other people who were my level found out I was doing it and were like, I want that experience too. So they also asked that same talent who was lovely and said, sure, we all can help out. Then they had no money to pay. So they took away the money. How do you think I should have dealt with that? Honestly, you dealt with it the way that probably you should have dealt with it, which is people found out it wasn't a, a sort of one-time thing. The end result was a result that you didn't have control over at the end of the day. So in that case, it, you think it was okay to get the experience. Again, this is mm -hmm. your time. Yeah. You can choose to volunteer your time. Mm -hmm. That's always what I say. But if there is money to be had, like you were right to ask. The fact that two other people found out and then they didn't have money to pay was unfortunate for you, certainly. But at the end of the day, that was the reality of that situation. But no, I absolutely think you should I, always ask. I think that that is the takeaway. And that's what we hear so much is that there is a trend, and I'm not saying this is a generational trend. I think it's something that women we see tend to do, which is lead with volunteer first and then gain the courage to ask to get paid. And I think a lot of that is that they're scared the answer is going to be no. Were you ever scared that the answer was going to be no? How did you get over that? always scared that the answer was going to be no. I always say that it's almost fighting through the ick, right? It's that feeling in your stomach where you're just, you don't really know what the answer is going to be. And I'm sure that you guys have had this because you have a company and the asks that you're making are of people who have huge platforms of their own and time constraints of their own. When I was writing the book, there are 33 case studies of women, everyone from Martha Stewart and Arianna Huffington to women that I know who've built businesses. And I started with 60 people on the list. So what does that tell you? And there was one woman, she was one of my first emails that went out. And I remember sitting there, you know, with, <laughs> with the send button, trying to push myself to do it because I just knew that she was going to say no. And she did say no. And I remember the email coming back and I thought to myself, well, now you know what it feels like and it's not that bad, so you'll be fine. And yeah. every time I got a no after that, it was easier. So my last question before we go into our lightning round is lightning round. you <laughs> are so confident. You know how to navigate the professional world. When are you not confident? What rattles you? Gosh, what rattles me? There are situations that rattle me all the time. I think when you become a parent, that's an interesting situation because you're not always sure of the answer. So I think I get a little rattled and sometimes really just hope that I'm doing the best job I can. I think professionally, I've worked long enough to understand that there are going to be good years and bad years and there are going to be mistakes that are made along the way. And the point is not 
that the mistake happened. The point is to not only learn from the mistake, but grow from the mistake. And then to make it better the next time. I'm not perfect. I'm sure that I've worked with people over the years who I gave advice to that they don't agree with. I'm sure that I had situations, and I talk about this in the book in my 20s, where you know there were a bunch of women working in a place where there were very few roles at the top, and we were all trying to get there. And I might have said unkind things that I wish I'd never said. So I've learned those lessons, and I think that's the key. You know, Keep the drama out of everything. That is the key to being good in work. Anyone listening to this, I will tell you that. Let's get into the lightning round. We ask you series of questions you answer as fast as you can. Very first job. Christie's. Like, no, like before the oh, babysitting. Yeah. Lemonade stand, ladies. Always selling. Worst job. I've actually always really liked my jobs. <laughs> actually, no. I did copies at my dad's law firm. It took a long time and was kind of boring, but I love my dad. Can you skim your nighttime routine for us? Get off stage at an auction, order sushi on the way home, high five my husband when I walk in the door, he goes to bed, I watch something or read something, and then I go to bed. What's the last thing you watched? Oh, Jack Ryan. It's Oh, I love I it. To, I just so finished season two. I love it. It's everything you wanted to be and more. <laughs> What's your biggest advice? Sugar. Me too. If I could just eat sugar all day. I don't think it is advice. I think oh, it's Oh, it's fine. completely advice. Also, no. I drink Diet Coke, which I, my friend's shame me about constantly. I recently <laughs> started drinking Thai Coke, which is like, it's the opposite <laughs> of what should happen. It's okay. You can come hang out with me Thank anytime you, you want. <laughs> What's the craziest auction item you've ever sold? Madison Square Garden in front of 6,000 people. I sold Bruce Springsteen's guitar oh and he was on stage with me while we were doing it. And he kept throwing in things. So he's strumming the guitar that we're <gasps> selling behind me. And the auction is going to 200, 250,000, yeah. $300,000 for this guitar. And he keeps throwing in things. My mom's lasagna, a ride on my motorcycle. <laughs> and the last thing he says is, you'll have to bring your own drugs because we don't give them out for free. And I said to the audience, well, that's exactly how we do things at Christie's. You can come, <laughs> you can buy the art, but there you are. How so much did I, it sell for? 370000 And then he leaned over and doubled it the last minute. Oh, so, wow. And it was for the Bob Woodruff Foundation, wow. which helps yeah. wounded warriors yeah. who are coming back. So it's amazing. Uh, shameless plug. Follow my Instagram, Lydia Finette. Buy my book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. It's hot pink. It looks great on Instagram. <laughs> it looks great on your shelf. It looks great everywhere. And then buy Carly and Daniel's book. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Lydia, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Too, Thanks, guys. Lydia. It was so fun. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 